Today's the 1st of November, 2022, and we're some nine months into the implementation of the National Security and Investment Act 2021, which really had its first day on the 4th of January this year. And we thought it was a good time to talk about a number of aspects, both the background, some context of the Act, but also some of the other aspects. And I'm uh, pleased to be joined today by both colleagues and friends from DRD Partnership. We have uh, John McLeod and Claire Harris from DRD Partnership, and my colleague, uh, Simon Barnes uh, from Shoesmiths. So I think we'll ask a few questions and have a chat about the National Security Investment Act from a policy, a political and legal um, point of view. And with that, perhaps we can start some background and context, uh, John, with really why the Act came about from a government point of view, uh, and then we'll move into some other aspects. Yeah, well, let's go for a sort of political flashback to what seems like eons ago, the premiership of Theresa May. And she had a political advisor called Nick Timothy, who'd become increasingly concerned about the influence of overseas interests over our critical infrastructure. And that kind of came to a head over the prospective uh, acquisition of uh, Hinkley Point C uh, by uh, Chinese controlled interests. That was considered to be the uh, thus far and no further, or not even thus far, uh, point in relation to overseas acquisitions. And it led to uh, the government deciding to consult on an entirely new uh, regime in, in 2017. Interesting how far things had changed since David Cameron took uh, President Xi to his local pub in the Cotswolds and shared a pint. Little did uh, we know that he was about to be uh, converted into the uh, thousand-year uh, emperor. That's Xi, not uh, Cameron, by the way. Um, but also, rather ironically, poor Nick Timothy's beloved Aston Villa, as soon as the government had announced this great move to uh, clamp down on uh, nefarious overseas interests in our corporate uh, life, his beloved Aston Villa was acquired by an overseas uh, private uh, entity and it was lost to the, the world for, for the long term. So that was where it came from. And then we saw the legislation which yeah. flowed from that. Yeah, very good. Um, on the legislation, Claire, perhaps you could give us your view on what it was hoped for at the time would be the the act or the, the vision, if, if you will, and, and perhaps a pointer to whether you think that's actually been realised on paper? Well, I think to start with, I think you have to think about it was meant to give quite far-reaching powers to the government to, to intervene. You know, backing up what John has said, mm. it, without those powers, it wouldn't be possible to control those um, investments from outside uh, companies in the, same, in the same way as under the Act. But I think the Act now it has been enforced, as you said, for nine months. We did a six months review of it. And I think we concluded that it had less zing to it than we might have thought was going to happen. With very um, broadly speaking, it's uh, as expected, um, quite straightforward in its application, quite positive in terms of 
lawyers' uh, appreciation of how it works in practice with a few critical points that we can perhaps talk about later. Um, and I think, you know, there's good, quick turnaround. Um, and generally, there hasn't really been any sort of eye-watering prohibitions, you know, kind of block this deal because it's so terrible. In fact, um, the new Secretary of State, Grant Shapps, yesterday um, cleared or no further actioned a case uh, involving the Royal Mail and uh, visa equity. Mm. So it, I think that's broadly speaking is, is as expected and probably not as zingy as we thought. Yeah, okay. So that's a good point. I mean, Simon, perhaps you can pick up then on the sort of legal aspects. I mean, I think lawyers had some some nightmares about what they would think was going to happen. But there was there's also, I think, a gap between the words of the act, and then we have the the criteria that are set out in the statement that had to be laid before Parliament, and then in the guidance documents themselves. Perhaps you can speak just a little bit about those bits of paper that are floating around and, and how, yeah, as so a I think, practicing lawyer, we, we engage with them. Certainly. I think, Kieran, one, uh, one important point to make is that I agree with what Claire has said, and that in many respects, the act is perhaps not as bad as many of us feared that it might be. It has to be said, though, that it has a very um, uh, material, if not particularly always significant, but it has a, it has a real impact just in terms of transaction pro yeah. process, not least because now when corporate transactions are taking place on more or less every single deal that happens, the question should be asked, does this deal require NSI Act approval? And the, um, the breadth of the rules, particularly in terms of the mandatory notification regime, which require acquisitions of control of entities active in certain specified sectors to be pre-approved by government, the scope of that regime is, is quite broad. And I think it's been quite a wake-up call, you've alluded to the, the bits of paper floating around, it's been quite a wake-up call on uh, a number of deals to businesses that we have worked with. It's been quite a surprise to them actually that they've needed uh, national security clearance on a deal that they would mm. not perceive as being anywhere near raising any national security issues whatsoever. And they're correct in that view. It's just the way that the net has been thrown very widely by this regime means that many, many deals are being caught and need to be notified and can't be completed until they've been cleared by government. Yeah, and I think that's um, quite a good way to... Let's just introduce some of the sort of key aspects, if you can speak to them, Simon, about the the process of, as Claire said, you, know, you fill in a form. <laughs> you know, Why do you fill in a form? Perhaps you can talk, just pick up a few of the, the legal um, aspects, perhaps more on the process side when it comes to considering a transaction and the consequences for the transaction parties. Certainly. Well, first step of the process inevitably is assessing whether you need clearance or not, which um, uh, there's a control test um, where there's an acquisition of control. The next question is, are you acquiring control of a business in any of these specified sectors? And we can perhaps look at those definitions a little bit later. But once you've established that you do require control, as Claire said, it's a question of filling in a form. Now, as lawyers, we have seen much worse, much more difficult forms. It's not a particularly difficult form to fill in. Inevitably, a question getting the right bit of information and uh, filling in, in the blanks, adding the right documents and submitting it. The review process is then essentially a 30 working day process from when the notification is accepted. We are finding, and I think the DRD research backed this up from memory from your six-month review you mentioned, Claire, we are finding that decisions are coming through after about days 23, 24, 25, that sort of number. So it's it's, it's not running its full course. Um, there are then a relatively small 
minority of deals that are called in, to use the expression, for a more detailed review, where in our experience, timing then becomes rather uncertain because there are timetables specified in the legislation, but there's also the ability to stop the clock. And we are finding that quite prevalent use is being made of the ability to stop the clock, which creates all sorts of uncertainty regarding timing. Yeah. And I think if I might just add there, I think the, the, the view we got from our report also was that it felt a bit like your notification has gone into a bit of a black box and there's no communication, um, no good communication between the, the, the team in the ISU and the, and the lawyers acting for the party. So um, it, it's making it even more difficult to kind of assess how, how the deal is, how it's going, how the, how the assessment is going, how the review is going. Yeah. So, so for context, I agree entirely. For context, the vast majority of deals that we have notified have quite frankly sailed through the system. You fill in the form, you essentially hear nothing until four weeks later when you receive a Investcom's clearance decision. Happy days, deals can deal can complete. For the small minority of deals where, for whatever reason, the government feels there might be a national security issue or at least something they want to consider in further detail, I agree absolutely with what you say. Claire, you feel like you're in a black hole. Mm. Um, as lawyers, particularly as competition lawyers like myself, you're used to an environment where you're receiving feedback, you're receiving uh, preliminary views from the authority, you have an opportunity to reply. With the uh, ISU, the body that looks at these uh, notifications, they, I think, feel constrained in their ability to give you any feedback because there are national security yeah. possible concerns. But it's a very difficult situation for the parties also for the advisors, because it's very difficult to actually um, uh, present a case where you don't know what the case is potentially against you. And if we if we move perhaps, John, to where the parties are have anticipated there may be questions asked, and I'm thinking of uh, the Australian Macquarie's proposed acquisition of British Gas's transmission, or most of its transmission network, which has um, been announced, I'm assuming those parties would be having private conversations with senior political figures almost outside of this sort of IS, ISU and, and, and uh, process. Is that, is that typical, would you say, from, from your perspective? Yeah, I think there are two things to bear in mind here. There's um, one set of situations where you've got a transaction uh, which is considering sort of three-dimensional merger clearance, which could include antitrust factors yeah. in there. Uh, the dialogue does get quite complex, but will certainly include political and policy actors. And um, our sense is that those smarter clients and um, smart lawyers like Shoesmith are encouraging those com conversations to take mm. place as early as possible. On the narrow point in relation to what are the national security conversations that can take place early, I think it's for clients to, and what we're seeing is clients who are aware of the opportunities to engage in dialogue on issues of concern. So a good example would be um, the Joint Committee on National Security Strategy, which is across the Lords and Commons, will have thematic reviews of issue areas into which our clients can insert their conversations and points and raise issues with uh, committee members and make sure that they get ventilated with, with the department mm. and, and indeed, frankly, with secondary sources like, for example, the security services with which it is impossible to engage directly, but you can find ways of getting your points um, surfaced yeah. in, in, a, in, a, in a secondary way. So those um, twin, that sort of twin track conversation needs to be factored into every prospective transaction. It's not going to be right for all of them, but some of them and the most sensitive, it will be the right thing to do. 
Yeah, and just on one point, Simon, we've had experience, haven't we, where we've asked, quote unquote, relevant standard questions. And, and one of the responses is, I can't give you the answer to that question because it's confidential, which is slightly unnerving when it comes to then advising on whether the Act applies. Although, guess what? It probably means the Act does apply. But uh, <laughs> Yes, in um, uh, relative layman's language, uh, for my benefit, the uh, one of the questions relates to, you know, is information you know, top secret? To which the answer was, we can't tell you because it's top. It, if, it, if we could answer this question, it would be top secret. So <laughs> yeah. um, uh, there are ways around that. It, it partly goes to the notification form, I think to some extent still being a work in progress. Mm -hmm. But it, um, we have certainly submitted notifications where we have been unable to answer certain of the questions because the target business has said, I'd better not answer that because I'll get myself into trouble and indeed might get you into trouble as well if I did. So the response to the ISU is simply, we can't answer this. Please speak to the, uh, the yeah. target company. And Claire, in the, in the six months DRD review, there was a sense that there were some clunkiness in the process and in the form but it was being recognised and worked on. And I think in the most recent guidance that came out in July, there was some recognition that there had been improvements in the, I think there in the was process some, and the form. I think, right? Yeah, the, obviously any, any new piece of legislation or new piece of government forms are going to have their issues. Um, and I think, yes, there, there has been a recognition, but I think there, there are probably steps that they could go further to make it a bit more um, simpler for, 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 for law firms to be able to advise their clients properly. Mm. Um, because the, the, the sort of scenario that you just pointed out is, is one where you're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, aren't you? Um, yeah. I think um, let's, let's move on to a couple of granular points. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of the, of the sectors, but before we get there, um, perhaps Simon, you can just pick up one or two examples where uh, we can see it's, it's a bit of a challenge for potential transaction parties to even recognise that the Act applies. Yes, and I think my opening comment on this would be it largely depends on the type of deal. On a straightforward corporate deal where the parties involved have instructed external lawyers, one would very much hope that those external lawyers will spot the NSI Act issue and the issue will be considered. Nevertheless, it can still be a wake-up call, a surprise to the parties. I think we've gone from many businesses having essentially zero knowledge of this new regime to many, but by no means all, businesses having knowledge of it now. Um, we are seeing that there are some sorts of deals, possibly ones that don't necessarily involve, you know, they're not what we perceive as sort of corporate acquisitions, M&A deals, which potentially can trigger NSI Act approval requirements, so internal reorganizations the government's guidance has made clear they can trigger if there's an acquisition of control of an entity in one of these sectors that requires clearance it may be an entirely internal reorganization within the business share buybacks also potentially if you have one shareholder essentially being bought out their shares effectively disappear other shareholders stakes commensurately rise up mm -hmm. if they go through one of the control triggers that can require clearance as well I don't. I think it's fair to say that it, it's not intuitive that that might be the sort of thing that either of those cases that could trigger and require clearance on a national security basis. Yeah, and I think you know one example that's not uncommon for a corporate reorganisation would be for tax reasons, or you just want to, from a company secretarial point of view, you want to get rid of too many excess yeah. um, ghost companies that really aren't doing anything, cluttering the books. Or ironically, in advance of an actual corporate deal where you're restructuring your business to get it ready for sale. Potentially, you could do something at that stage that requires clearance. And dare I say it, when the clever lawyers on the other side come in and, and do their due diligence, they then ask questions 
well, why didn't you get clearance for that? And yeah. so all sorts of um, pickles that businesses potentially can get into. Yeah. And I think we also haven't seen, you know, a number of elements where um, the act clearly applies and the guidance is somewhat helpful in, in describing. And in that regard, I think the connection to the UK is probably something that is going to be uh, a, a concern. And I'm surprised it hasn't arisen as much as it, as it should be. So you have a business in Germany that's being acquired, but it has significant exports to the UK. That's a connection to the UK. So you think you're buying a German company. Well, what's that got to do with the UK NSI Act? Well, it can have. So um, I think we will be seeing, in a sense, more problems coming out of the woodwork as, as uh, almost by accident sometimes, I think. Yes, and, and on paper, the legislation has quite some teeth in terms of non-compliance, not least that uh, depending on circumstance, it can be a criminal offence by the acquirer not mm. to obtain clearance, and, and you know, the law doesn't come much more scary than that. Um, we haven't yet seen any enforcement, but I, I wonder whether these issues are going to start to come uh, to light, actually, again, as part of due diligence processes on future deals. When our corporate colleagues here at Chewsmiths are are conducting due diligence in relation to an acquisition, they are already asking about previous deals involving that particular target company with the question, should clearance have been obtained for any of those previous deals? And there's going to be a whole, yeah, I, th I suspect that is where issues are going to come to light. And that's, you know, at one level, not as bad as criminal prosecution by any means, but it's going to create a whole load of headaches in terms of yeah. unraveling uh, things that may have gone wrong in the past. Yeah. So uh, you, leaning on the word headaches, um, so there are 17 sectors uh, where if the target active is, is active in any of these, then um, the, the act is, is likely to be triggered. And I know that our team at Shoesmiths have, have spent uh, many an hour scratching their head wondering what certain phrases mean. And I wondered, um, I mean, I, I think uh, one of the early ones I spotted was in the advanced materials sector. If you then looked into the subparagraphs and the sub-subparagraphs, uh, an example given was... Um, if you're engaged in um, lead and re, you know, reworking of lead. So that doesn't strike me as an advanced material, um, but uh, that's that's a good example. And I thought perhaps we'd, we'd focus a little bit on um, artificial intelligence, which is one of the, the 17 sectors, and perhaps again, go to the broader context, um, John, if you could um, describe the broader context and, and the government's policies here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, there are two things with the sectors. It's just worth saying that we've got these starting definitions, which are a peculiar mixture of the general and the specific. So your your lead example is, is, a, is a very pertinent one. In terms of the selection of artificial intelligence, it's kind of one of the sexy sectors to pick on because everyone imagines it doing something um, kind of scary or, or novel. Um, but artificial intelligence is really quite simple. It's the opposite of natural in intelligence. So it's the uh, enabling of machines to execute uh, what would otherwise be uh, human tasks um, at greater speed or with greater capacity or with greater accuracy. And it's the third point, which is the one that generates the need for their to be policy because being accurate isn't always good because it obviates discretion. And so what policymakers have detected is that artificial intelligence requires human mediation to avoid things like discrimination or mm -hmm. at the extreme end, 
killing people because the machine hasn't been properly directed um, to avoid um, getting rid of human life. So that's why AI has emerged as being this thing which requires uh, policy governance. Now, if we look at the UK uh, policy context, it's a mixture of the dense and the rambling. So um, we've got different artificial intelligence strategies. We've got one for civ broadly civil applications, but there's separately a defense artificial intelligence strategy, arguably uh, more evolved. Um, if we take the sort of broadly civil mm. uh, AI strategy, um, we've seen that actually the government has slightly lost its way in policy terms from in 2021, setting out a vision to become a 10-year powerhouse for AI, um, to earlier this year, um, Nadine Doris and Kwasi Kwarteng, remember them, uh, uh, published, publishing what was rather, rather meekly called a policy paper about artificial uh, intelligence, which rather took us back to the beginning by saying, you know, we, we all think it's rather important and, you know, shouldn't we be doing more of this? So the direction of policy um, is, is intriguing for people, uh, and in particular for clients and lawyers working on these cases, because it's shifting all the time. And it means that there are different potential risks and sensitivities for merger clearance, which have to be taken account of in terms of what's coming out of the great government scriptorium of policies which are being generated at any one moment. Yeah. I mean, it's true. The I mean, the the July paper was, I think, trying to identify, in particular, the regulatory side of things, where um, they they were pointing to things that will happen or, or should happen because because of certain various concerns. I, I want to clear whether we can pick up on another aspect, which I found something of a tension between the government's expression in its twenty twenty one paper and and indeed in the more recent July communication about the importance of encouraging foreign direct investment into the UK in the AI space. And, and yet at the same time, we have this tension, which is, oh, but we are going to check for, for any concerns on national yeah. security. Well, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, well, you couldn't see, you couldn't um, have hoped for a greater dichotomy there, really, in terms yeah. of dual purpose policy um, objectives. And I just think it's um, that at some point there's going to have to be some rationalization of what it is that we do actually want. And I think maybe if we go further on the line of, of streamlining what the AI policy objectives are for the country, maybe that will then help uh, the rest of it. Because, you know, the FDI impact of, of it's, it's really ne necessary to have uh, foreign direct investment into the UK. We know this is a, a very important for growth. We know that this government is uh, dedicated to growth, and um, one one aspect would be to develop our AI, AI capabilities. And, uh, and there we are. Yeah. No. No. And and so, just as Simon throw just throw it out. Any others that you would say we've we've had to really scratch our heads more than once when it comes to the definitions or or indeed the inter interrelationship between some of them. Quantum quantum computing was, I think, at one point thought to be a bit of a, of a, of a head scratcher, but it doesn't seem to have been uh, so prevalent. No, I mean, what what we're finding at the coalface from from the yeah, from the lawyers' side is that for most businesses, you can you do a pretty good desktop analysis as to what sectors are likely to apply. But we're not, well, we're not sure. That doesn't really give enough confidence in reality. And we've we've seen enough deals already 
where there's been activity, which may be a very small part of the business's activity, which actually you'd never guess from looking at its website or reading the information memorandum. In the very early days of the regime, we came across a, a transaction where the target company, it turned out, did a tiny bit of something called synthetic biology, which is one of the sectors, where there was not a single hint in any published or other material relating to this business. It had a small research department that did it. Technically, that would have triggered mm. from crime. And again, it would have technically potentially been a criminal offence not to obtain clearance. Yeah. So it, it, we're seeing all manner of screening questionnaires by all sorts of law firms and others. Um, some are better than others. Some are a bit unwieldy. Some are a bit brief. But it's it's unfortunately necessary to ask the questions because it's not intuitive. It's not predictable. Yes. <laughs> I think we have seen one... Uh due diligence questionnaire on this act, which was almost as long as the act. <laughs> which rather defeated, we thought, the, per, the point of providing guidance to clients. Um, perhaps we can move on to, uh, Claire, you were talking about the zing of, of, of the act and maybe it didn't quite have it. And I mean, I think we've got the data that there were three call-in notices um, to date. Uh, I think one is now on, on still ongoing. Going, yeah. And we've had nine final orders. So compared to the many hundreds of applications that have been made, that is, that's quite a light touch. I don't know whether it would be fair to say that those um, final orders could have been obviously seen at the beginning. Um, I don't know if you've got a view on that. I mean, my one takeaway when I've looked at the decisions is that they're um, rather light in details, <laughs> one pager, uh, not even, which we will talk about in a little bit. The Act was originally, and I think the politics message was about um, ensuring foreigners don't get hold of critical infrastructure and national treasures and, and, and the like. Um, and yet um, even um, a UK private equity firm was subject to some um, behavioural controls on its transactions. So then it's not a function really of being nationality. It's much more um, opaque than that. Well, yeah, and that's a real problem, isn't it? Because um, if you if you start to think about it in those terms, you've got um, you're, you're barking up the the wrong tree somehow. Because I, I think the problem with it is that you have um, a stated objective, which looks at, and and then the legislation, which looks stated objective being to stop um, foreign control of our infrastructure. You've got legislation which looks a little bit like a sledgehammer to crack a nut. We've got the evidence to show that actually not many cases have, have come up, but and those that are, as you've said, slightly opaque or slightly odd. Um, and you wonder really what's going on. I mean, I wonder what's going on in the in the ISU in the unit that's looking mm. into it, and maybe they're having trouble also applying the uh, the categories and, and and the law, and they're having difficulty in, in reaching the right decision. So. Um, I, I, you know, it feels like that there's a lot more work to be done. Yeah. And, and I think that possibly within the unit itself, they could do with more training. Um, I don't know. I assume they have had training, but I mean, maybe more to, because they don't work, as, as you were saying, they don't work in the same way as we've got used to working with the, the European Commission, for example, mm, mm. CMA, where these are technocrats who are um, used to dealing with problems and ironing them out and kind of coming to a consensus. Whereas this is, it's, it feels like it's black letter law, which is being applied almost in a, in a um, tick box yeah, fashion yeah, yeah. and without necessarily the sort of thought 
going into it that we might expect. Mm. So it's black letter yeah. law where my personal sense is that the, the substantive assessment, is there a possible issue here, let alone an actual problem, is there a possible issue? That assessment is being made at a political level, yeah. which feels very different to the ISU, which seems to be dealing with things on an administrative yeah. level. But just agreeing with your point, Claire, on an administrative level, rightly or wrongly, there's uh, no consistency of approach, say, between the ISU on the one hand and the Competition and Markets Authority in the merger control context, which, let's be frank, a lot of us are much more used to dealing with the CMA's approach and how it engages with business, how you know the, the type of guidance it can offer, um, the, the interactions you have with them. The ISU is a very different uh, beast at the moment, at least. Yeah. I mean, John, I'm assuming if the MOD says jump, the response is how high, right? So in that sense, picking up Simon's point, the ISU is more of an administrator. Is the ISU, if the MOD places some objections in relation to a deal, I assume that just gets translated into... Into a decision. Into a decision, right? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the thing to bear in mind is that the MOD already has, for example, a regulated regime in relation to defence manufacturing. So there yeah. are very specific... Um, physical and legal and policy-related controls to um, defence equipment yeah. manufacturing yeah. in the UK, uh, yeah. down to what spaces are open, what spaces, what people go into which spaces and so mm -hmm. on. So that's pretty clearly delineated. I think the, the area where we're going to start to find some difficulty in the future is um, the growth of asymmetric warfare. Mm. So... Um, when you consider the situation we are in the UK now, where we're just getting towards having some kind of resilient strategy, we're getting some of the policy infrastructure in place, that's great. But we are already in an asymmetric war mm. with China and mm. with Russia, mm. whether we like it or not. Now, that has implications for decision making in these deals, because somebody within the security apparatus of the UK government will take a view about the relationship of those transactions to the to that bigger picture which is emerging. Yeah. But there's no kind of stated framework around that other than this rather oblique list of sectors and sector definitions. Yeah. So yeah. the lawyers, the legal advisors, have an enormous gap to fill in this process to guide the clients through to make sure that they're not left abandoned at the gate, as it were, and that they find the correct path to securing their objectives for the transaction. Just a sort of, a, a, this is a bit of a curveball, but if there were to be a change of government um, and it was, for example, a Labour government that came in, do you think that they would proceed with the act in the same way or do you think they'd try and rip it up? Um, well, the first point to make is that there is a possibility that there will be a Labour government uh, in probably in 2024. So we do need to, clients need to be ready for that. I think the second point to bear in mind is Labour will be quite hawkish on defence. And there's an important yeah. uh, right wing constituency within the Labour Party, which is very pro defence spending, very pro defence jobs, uh, pro nuclear and pro national security. Um, so we should not expect laissez-faire from uh, a Labour administration. We should expect quite a strong stance, in particular when you bear in mind that Labour is more likely to call out human rights abuses in third countries, yeah, yeah. and so could tie that into a definition of what is a hostile state. Okay. 
it becomes necessary to understand the policy and political agenda to then interpret the implementation of the act. That's absolutely right, Kieran. And, and of course, Labour will have no discomfort with being interventionist. Yeah, yeah, I understood. Yeah. Um, if we turn perhaps to... Um, we've been talking about the Act and, and um, haven't out, said it out expressly, but the regime is, is um, largely mandatory. That's the, the big challenge. But there is a voluntary regime. Um, do you want to say, Simon, briefly about wh why anyone would volunteer for this, this procedure? I'm going to cheekily, Kieran, pass that one back to you because <laughs> that question was asked by a man who probably about two or three weeks ago um, submitted uh, one of our more recent notifications. Well, I think, voluntary, yeah. so over to you. Well, the, I mean, the response, and perhaps every case is, is different, but this, there were um, foreign uh, nationals, uh, foreign entities involved on the purchaser side, from a certain part of the world where um, if the government took a view, they might decide that they didn't want them to be owners of a business. Um, and the business was connected to something which is quite important to the national security. So um, I, can, I could see that that was potentially an issue. Um, personally, I think it was... A little bit of a challenge to communicate that to the client because obviously the clients was assuming them they're all very good and, and, and honourable people. Of course they were, but the point is um, convincing that they really ought to um, for the better do a voluntary filing was um, was an interesting exercise. Um, was it cleared? In process. <laughs> um, I think it's fair to say on, on lots of deals that there are inevitably commercial pressures not to notify if um, if notification is not mandatory, not least because notifying on a voluntary basis implies submitting a notification, waiting your 30 working days for clearance, and presumably then not completing a deal until clearance has been obtained. Yeah. So to my mind, you know, I think it's, in our experience at least, it's, it's relatively few and far between that people are choosing voluntarily to notify. And we have heard on the grapevine a few instances of deals that have been voluntarily notified and then get called in by government, so taken to that next stage. And mm -hmm. you can imagine where people think, rats, why did, why did we notify? But for the right deal, as you say, and I know, I know firsthand you thought long and hard about yeah, that one as yeah, to what the right yeah. you know, advice was, for the right deal, it's, it's an option to, to, to ward off the possibility of government looking at it after the event, which, of course, is the, is the, is the risk that you're uh, warding off by seeking a voluntary clearance. I think we'll have uh, one more question, and then we'll do a quick... Quick wrap up. And the one question I have is, we, and we've touched a little bit on it, um, Claire, you mentioned, but the, the deals that have been subject to final orders, um, they've been very, um, uh, it's been very unclear on the face of the document um, what's really going on. And uh, we could have a conversation about um, judicial review and the challenges that that might be made. I think there was a comment in the DRD six-month review that in general lawyers were thinking there will be an appeal at some point because someone needs to test this piece of legislation. But also, but how, how do you frame your appeal when you have um, very little information as, yeah. to, as the reason for the um, the block? So I think I think it's a it's one of those questions which somebody will have to one law firm or another or one client or another will 
will will take that step, and and that will perhaps clear it clear it up at least uh, initially. Yeah. But um, yeah. I mean, I think it would be a really good policy move for them to be a bit more forthcoming with their their reason reasoning yeah. in in the notice. I'm mean, you know, I'm thinking to the European Commission, and, <clears throat> and I'm thinking about uh, short form. Um, decisions in a cartel settlement case for example yeah, where yeah. at least you get some of the the gist of what's been bones. going on yeah yeah um and I, and I think that would be useful but i i do understand obviously the context of uh, national security they might not be able to do that but maybe some minds ought to be thinking um if there's some way of kind of making that happen to so to, for legal certainty yeah yeah i mean i actually i have expressed the view in writing that um if it did go to judicial review, I think the court would actually demand of the ISU to issue a report, which would then allow the court to conduct a proper judicial review oh, of the decision. See, they could see it, and yeah. even if the parties couldn't. Yeah, something like that. Something like that could be the process. So perhaps just to go around the table, where do we think we'll be in a year? Any surprises or, or, or other thoughts that you might have? On the NSI? Well, Kieran, life is full of uh, surprises. Um, <laughs> but I think, I mean, I would say three things. Firstly, this is uh, a thousand piece jigsaw, and we've only got nine of the pieces on the table at the moment. So, mm. of course, mm. we can't tell uh, what it is yet. Um, secondly, I feel that um, we are moving to a situation where policymakers are going to attach increasing increasing importance to a resilience strategy, to a national resilience strategy. There's been an ongoing process of policy development there. It has to have meaning and coherence mm. uh, in its application of, if it's to work itself through into real-world benefits and meaningful uh, decisions. And then thirdly, I think we should uh, expect um, two or three really big blockbusting uh, cases where there is the zing uh, that Claire's uh, talking about, which which tell us a little bit about this regime, which at the moment feels very liquid and actually can be made justiciable with reference to some particular uh, substantive uh, legal ideas and, and, and economic and security ideas which uh, are important to the country. So I'd look out for those zingers in the year to come. Yeah, thanks, John. Claire? And that'll be very interesting to see which um, which parties are going to be able to stand up to it and, uh, and and take that on. But I think um, going back to what I was saying about the ISU, um, I think there are certain things which could be done in the meanwhile. I mean, while we're waiting for, I mean, they must be getting more and more used to the process and, and, and dealing with things. And I think it, there could be more done to aid that communication um, between the parties and, and avoiding the sort of thing that we also heard was that the CMA encouraging parties to, to to notify. So to clarify what the actual relationship is between the CMA and the um, the ISU, mm. because I think that's a little bit murky. Yeah, that's a good point. Simon, any I'll just make a concluding comment from the cold face of uh, one of our team advising on the umpteen deals that we advise on each yeah, which is on the one hand, it, it's it's a new regime. It's easy to knock it. It's not perfect, but also it, it's possibly not quite as bad as we feared. I, I haven't seen statistics. I think there's an indication in your DRD report that possibly expectation is there'll actually be fewer notifications than we, including myself, thought there probably would yeah. be. Um, if I had a wish at this stage, aside from the sort of bigger policy points that John in particular alluded to, I think just greater clarity and certainty as to scope 
recognizing that there are criminal offenses associated with getting it wrong. Um, the definitions of the sectors, not clear cut at all, and arguably a bit wide in some respects. Yeah. He says charitably. So just great, greater certainty, greater clarity would be appreciated. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'd echo that. I think, I, indeed, I think uh, the government had identified it would it be issuing some more guidance, indeed, in relation to the sector descriptions. Although we're, we're we got a slightly different guidance back in uh, July this year. So, John and Claire from DRD Partnership, thank you very much. Simon from Shoesmith, thank you. And myself. Uh, that concludes the session. Thank you.